Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Life Lessons from Sports and Beyond. I'm Simon Mundy and my guest today is Dr. Amy Izicki, clinical psychologist and psychodynamic psychotherapist with a major interest in sports and author of the frankly paradigm-shifting book, Skewed to the Right, Sport, Mental Health and Vulnerability. Now everyone knows the general narrative around elite athletes, that they are somewhat superhuman, capable of achieving the truly incredible. True in many ways, but perhaps not the whole story. What if in many cases the drive needed to become the best in the world comes from a place of internal disquiet and dissatisfaction? That's what Amy's suggesting, and it's a viewpoint I think needs to be explored. Here's a snapshot of what's coming up ultimately what I'm seeing is that yes if people are motivated to be elite and go to the lengths that's required of them to be elite then there is something underneath that that's motivating that level of engagement. We also talk about shifting the overall mental health narrative forward from it's okay not to be okay of course that's true but let's not stay stuck there let's embrace a new message it's okay to do the work to be okay. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Get in touch at Simon Mundy on social media or via my website. Before we get to it, I just have to give a shout out to my sponsors whose support enable me to put out weekly episodes. Now, I'm a CBD fan and advocate. It's been part of my routine for several years now. And Pure Sports CBD have the best and broadest selection around, in my opinion. Whether you're anxious, stressed, struggling to focus or sleep there's something for everyone in their brilliant range of oils capsules balms and nootropics i use a number of pure sports cbd's products and they're all triple lab tested 
and trusted by lots of the world's top athletes for a very good reason. So check out their amazing products at puresportcbd.com and get £10 off your first order by using the code LIFE10. That's LIFE and the number 10 at checkout. Now, let's get to this week's conversation with the fantastic Dr. Amy Aziki. Dr. Amy Aziki, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. It's always nice to have these little bits of a how are you chit chat at the start particularly after having spoken for 15 minutes before recording it always uh, amuses me a little bit but it's lovely to talk to you I'm very excited to talk to you I think this is a a very important episode a a bit of a challenging episode perhaps as well Um, and yeah we're going to be taking a bit of a different look at the way the narrative that is formed around sport and around all sorts of things, actually, really, aren't we? We, we kind yeah. of know where we're headed. And uh, first of all, shout out to you, to your book. So your book is called Skewed to the Right, and we'll explain what that means. Um, <laughs> sport, mental health and vulnerability. I thought it was superb. Now, I, I say that to everyone who's got a book out, but genuinely, Amy, I really think this is an important book. I think it it goes completely uh, in a new, fresh and important direction. And so, yeah, I just want to commend you. And I'm really excited to speak to you because I think this is uh, an important one. Anyway, enough waffle from me. Let's start with you. So you are a clinical psychologist and a psychodynamic psychotherapist. Why don't we start with you explaining what the devil that means in simple terms? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? So... Um... <laughs> So clinical psychology, uh, I work with people with mental health difficulties and clinical psychologists can work in different ways. So you can use different therapeutic models. So you might have heard of cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. You might have heard of EMDR. My preferred way of working and my further training is with psychodynamic psychotherapy. So People might have a frame of reference for this where they think about Freud and being on a couch. You see the couch behind <laughs> me. Um, so I'm interested in people's unconscious worlds. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a mental health problem to come into psychodynamic psychotherapy. It might mean that you're just interested in understanding who you are. And the drivers, your drivers. Absolutely, yes. So from your developmental experience, how has that shaped who you are today and who you are in your relationships and how you relate to things in your life? And are there any internal conflicts? Yeah. You mentioned the unconscious. To what degree are we driven, our behaviours, our patterns, our ways of relating, the types of relationships we have, the sports we choose, the jobs we choose, et cetera, et cetera. How influenced are we in all of those things by our unconscious, in your view? Well, in my view, I'm going to have to say entirely, aren't we? Um, (laughs) You know, there's the interaction between the conscious world and the unconscious world. Being a clinical psychologist who's trained in multiple methods or therapeutic models, if there is a difference between our unconscious world and our conscious worlds, we often see that we can do the change work in the conscious space, but the unconscious will always come and bite you, really. Right. So yeah. uh, the unconscious is what drives us. You know, yeah. that's our template way of being. So when people talk about, oh, they're not very conscious, they're not very awake, 
Mm. Am I right in thinking that what that means is they are not aware of their unconscious reasons for doing things? And therefore, the work someone might do with someone like you, or the work, as we shall refer to it henceforth (laughs) for the rest of this program, doing the work is basically about understanding, increasingly understanding the patterns that we all have and those unconscious drivers and, you know, unpicking, for example, the ones that perhaps are a little dysfunctional and and we want to let go of. Yes, absolutely. So the, the focus of the work in psychodynamic therapy is to connect with what lives in our unconscious world. And if we can bring that material into our conscious world, the idea is that we can then be more conscious of our behaviors and the choices that we're making, the situations we find ourselves in. And if we're more conscious of that, then we can make a change. Um, And we have more choice. We're not basically acting on autopilot of patterns that may have been almost certainly produced in childhood, but maybe going generations back even. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. And and that's what I'm interested in. And I think that's, you know, we, we've been talking before. I think sometimes that's why people are a little bit fearful of going down the psychodynamic route, because there's this fear that you're going to have to explore your relationship with your mother and your father. <laughs> um, it, it's not about blame. And no. I, think, I think we need to make that clear that mm. this is about increasing awareness. So the, the reason that we analyze is to connect with what's in our unconscious world so that we can understand why we are the way we are. I'm glad you said it's not about blame because (laughs) I've done a lot of the work in my life and that's really led me, I think, to doing this kind of work in terms of the podcast and the direction it's taken. And I think for a long time, there was feelings of blame in my life. There was, first of all, feelings of why me? (laughs) Why, Mm -hmm. Why do I feel insecure? Why do I feel X, Y, Z? But there was also then blame it's your fault and then I think as you go deeper into this stuff you realize actually it's really impersonal because Mm. and correct me if I'm wrong but like for me let's say my patterns they will have been often produced when I was five six seven years old whatever you know a young child and you go at young child who didn't really understand things and certainly wasn't able to understand that my parents were fallible human beings with their own issues and therefore the way they related to me really had very little to do with me and was all their own stuff I then personalized it it becomes an issue in my psyche and I blame it on them but actually it was all impersonal and I think that's that for me has been a a real revelation just how impersonal things are yeah and and you're right to name that process as well I mean as much as it's not about blame I think it's it's unfair to say that you don't go through a part in your therapy where you are quite angry, yeah. potentially, at your care objects. And I use the term objects as, yeah. as uh, yeah. you know, carers, mum, dad, yeah. uh, people around us. And, and it's, that's part of the process. And, you know, it's probably really important that we do experience some anger, but then like you say, I think you come out the other end and I often see this, that you go through the anger and then you come out with an understanding as to, well, my parents were also once children 
and they had parents mm. and this is what happened in their relationship with their parents. And then we get into the transgenerational stuff that's passed down. And like you say, it's then an, an, a wider analysis and understanding of what's happened rather than just blaming and being angry about someone's situation. Yeah. And one of the themes we're talking about in this episode is moving the mental health conversation forward because right now we're at this place aren't we where it's it's okay not to be okay now yeah. that's better than it's not okay to not be okay but mm -hmm. we're somewhat stuck at this place of it's okay not to be okay and what you're saying and what I totally agree with is moving that forward to it's okay to do the work yes that's, that's what we're yeah. trying to that's what we're advocating here absolutely and, and I think you know, the, when you look at cultural change, it, it happens in stages, doesn't it? And at one time, the it's okay to not be okay was, was a wonderful drive because there was a stigma at one time where, where people struggled to talk about mental health. I, I don't know whether we're still there. There are a lot of people that, you know, are using the hashtag, it's, it's okay to not be okay. And, and that's great that people feel that they can talk about their mental health and well-being. But as a psychologist, what I'm concerned about is that we then just stay in that stage. And that doesn't mean that people are then talking about, well, okay, if we're not okay, what are we doing about that? Mm. And how are we changing this? And, and I think, you know, we've spoken a bit about the media and, and we're going to come on to sports. Yeah, but we are. I feel, I feel <laughs> that we're in a stage where, you know, the media are, are acknowledging that our high performance sports people have mental health difficulties. But I don't think what's being spoken about enough is, well, what are we doing about that? And, yeah. and that's my desire. I want to I want to move towards something a bit a bit different now about yeah. well it's okay to do the work 100% and it's about taking responsibility isn't it it's like Bill Bezik the former Man United psych he said that he would often feel empathy for people who'd have real rough childhood starts whatever but not sympathy because we all still have a responsibility to do our best with the cards that we've been dealt and that means not just staying in that victim mode but actually being like okay what do I then have to do to to move through it? And I'll tell you another thing that I've learned is having trodden this path a lot myself actually is if you do it as well, you can actually learn to be grateful for the difficult things, the traumas you've been through because actually you can learn a lot and become get a bit of wisdom from it. So now having been previously a bit of a why me type, I'm now actually, I'm really grateful that I've, uh, had some difficulties in my life because it's taught me a hell of a lot yeah I mean you're absolutely right when you come out the other side there's this realization isn't there that there's certain character traits in us that our pasts have shaped and and actually some of them even though they're a bit double-edged they, they can deliver some real struggle and distress but actually they, they've also probably helped us a lot in other areas of our lives. Yeah. And, and this is why change can be quite challenging because certain personality traits can be helpful and unhelpful at the same time. Yeah. Um, but it, course, it's yeah. really nice if you can look back and be grateful for the moments where actually these traits are quite helpful at times. Yeah. And those personality traits that can be both helpful and destructive leads us nicely onto sport. <laughs> 
Um, And look, I think from the outset, uh, just a quick disclaimer, really, that everything we're talking about is not in any way anti-sport. You, I mean, Mm -hmm. you yourself were an accomplished sports person yourself. Obviously, I love sport. This is in no way anti-sport. This is just a different view, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I continue to really enjoy sport, historically enjoyed it, but uh, it's just trying to understand what's happening in our sports culture at this time. And it does need a bit of a different look, I think. Uh, Very quickly, just a quick overview of your sporting life. Yeah, so, um, goodness, Uh, grew up as a, a competitive swimmer as a child. The whole family, we were competitive swimmers. Um, parents of footballers. Uh, it was a it was a sporting household. Um, I I was then a high performance rower. Uh, that was probably my main sport. had had a bit of an injury there. My appendix went, and I had a decision to make. It wasn't a, a career ending injury, but I think I just decided that I wanted to do the sport in a more recreational sense. Had an experience as a rower, being invited to be a lightweight rower. So that was eye-opening. And there's a chapter in the book about being a lightweight rower. Um, And so that means you have to be under a certain weight, right? Yeah, yeah. As a female, yeah, yeah, absolutely. As a female, you had to be under 60 kilos. Mm -hmm. Um, So for tall women with long uh, wingspans for rowing, that's quite challenging. Yeah. Um, So yeah, experience of doing that. And then just more recreational sport. Another thing to to just nod to is the difference then as well between a clinical psychologist and a sports psychologist, because they are quite different. Yeah, yeah, hugely different. Um, And it's not that one's better than another. Let's say that as well. It's just that we're different. Um, So I'm a clinical psychologist that works with sports people. So what that means is that so let, let's talk about this in terms of stability, okay? So if an athlete has stability and they want to enhance performance, we're looking at typically a sports psychologist. So sports psychologists look to enhance performance, whereas if an athlete or sports person aren't necessarily feeling very stable and there is an element of distress or struggle, then we would be looking at a clinical psychologist to assist with those mental health needs. And in your book, there are a few people who talk about this. And from what you've just said there, a sports psychologist, their main focus is performance. And a clinical psychologist, it sounds like it's more the person. And there were a couple of bits that stuck out to me that some people didn't click with sports psychologists and maybe that was just a you know there are better psychologists just as there are better state agents just as there are better everything right but some people didn't click and felt it was just performance 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 and then even at one point in there you talk about how some people would go and see I think a clinical psychologist or similar to be able to go and see a sports psychologist because they felt so objectified in terms of performance yeah, yeah. I think so. The the first example you gave, where it felt like performance, 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 was with um, a jockey, Mark Enright, that I spoke to, who was in a a very challenging place at the time, where he was struggling with depression. And I think in that sense, when you are confronted with a mental 
illness or a mental health difficulty, you're not necessarily looking to enhance your performance because you're in a very different place where actually you can't even consider performance before you can look at your own internal world and your emotional space at that time. Mm. So just to contextualize that comment. And then the comment about seeing clinical psychologists before sports psychologists that's another area I don't know whether we'll go down this route but um that was more so a discussion about whether or not athletes felt safe to see the psychologist who was employed by their team right so it was an in-house psychologist right so there was a fear that if they communicated um about their distress and struggle was it then safe for mm. that to be communicated in-house because would that go to the coaches who would then be making team selection and would be deciding whether or not that individual was fit to play? Yeah, um, be- because for someone like you, who's a clinical psychologist, for the work you do with a client or with a person to be effective they have to completely know that they can trust you and that anything that gets said gets left in in those in the walls uh, in your room and so not having that trust means essentially the work can't be done right yeah you're absolutely right it it has to be a safe space and you know it's one of the first things that we talk about with anyone that steps into a therapeutic environment you talk about the limitations of that confidentiality so um even within this space, there are limits to my confidentiality. So, and I will explain that because I also have a duty of care. So everything that's shared with me does remain confidential unless I have concerns about Hmm. risk to the individual or to someone else. And I will tell people that if I have those concerns, I may need to share something, but I will always try and prepare that individual um, if I am going to have to share something in order to keep them safe. Okay. So nothing should come as a surprise right. if that if that confidentiality is broken. Okay. All right. So we've laid a bit of a, a foundation of uh, who you are, why you're a bit different, you know, your sporting background, etc. So before we get on to sport and the narrative of sport, and what skewed to the right means, can we also just start with another premise which is that for true emotional well-being all children need the loving gaze of their parents can you just explain what that means and also if they don't get that or if we don't get that as many of us don't for many reasons what the possible implications are yeah so The gaze of our parents is hugely important to us. This relates to the process of something called internalization. Okay, so as as part of our training as psychoanalysts, psychodynamics, psychotherapists, we actually do an infant observation. So you go in and you uh, observe a baby for once a week from the day it's born up to its first year. And it's all about what does that baby internalize over that first year of its life? And a baby will, (laughs) from the earliest stages, will recognize when an adult's gaze is on it and it will internalize the emotional quality of that gaze as well. Wow. 
Um, and so if you have an adoring, loving parent that communicates to that child with its gaze that it is valued and it is loved and it is safe, the child will internalize that. Wow. And they will develop a sense of safety, a sense of value, and a sense of well-being. Crikey. Even that, even that first, sorry, just to interrupt, even so mm -hmm. that first year, even yes. that first year, absolutely foundational. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it's it's a it's typically a nonverbal year, right? Yeah, we're yeah. not we're not dealing with words yet. Um, but, you know, I'm sure you've heard of all the phrases, the body remembers. Yep. Um, it's it's internalized right from the get go. Um, and, you know, I mean, goodness, we won't go down this route. But even before in the womb, yeah. you know, we're talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. Uh, what what's happening in the womb in terms of hormonal uh, changes. Mm. Uh, what is the mother communicating in that way in the womb but we'll we'll stick with the first year um and and uh, onwards throughout development but yeah. similarly if a child is not given a loving valuable gaze it internalizes something very different i i don't know whether we can both relate to this simon but if <laughs> if you know we're aware of an internal voice that we have that might be quite critical yeah yeah oh yeah it might be that we've been exposed to something where a gaze has been somewhat judgmental or critical mm. and that then becomes internalized and that's then how we relate to ourselves so it's it's hugely shaping in those early years yeah so you mentioned the emotional quality of the gaze we get. Mm -hmm. So a gaze of high emotional quality would be one that transmits pure acceptance. Mm. Is that fair? Sure. Yes. I mean, I mean, I was thinking about high emotional quality. We can then talk about high expressed emotional environments where you might have a high kind of anxiety mother and that yeah. would then be internalized but if you're talking about uh what's most valuable yes then yes uh, an accepting regardless of whether you know the child unconditional. Pushes... unconditional unconditional there you go you know the child pushes the food on the floor is is the mother still accepting and loving of the child yeah <laughs> or is or is the mother telling the child off and being quite punitive yeah if we don't get that loving gaze, right? Mm -hmm. If we don't get that accepting gaze and we don't internalize all that stuff, it can have consequences for our well-being. So can we just take that back to the, to the world of sport then and how that might manifest, for example, in terms of elite athletes and also in your view, how common it is in terms of elite athletes for for someone who didn't get that a gaze to then enter into that highly competitive world? So <laughs> where to start? Sport is a competitive thing um, if, if you relate to it in that way. So let's talk about high performance sport. Yeah. Let's, let's yeah. call it that because that's yes. what we're talking about. Yeah. Elite sport, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about elite sport. So elite sport is competitive. It's also um, an environment or an activity that draws an audience, okay? And the more successful you get, the bigger the audience and the bigger the feedback, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that if certain children or individuals growing up have not had gaze on them, loving gaze, 
that they might seek to find that elsewhere. So they might seek out audiences or external feedback that tells them that they are good enough or valuable in other ways. Because intrinsically, they might not have internalized that message that they are good enough and they are valuable regardless or unconditionally <laughs> in terms of what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, when we're talking about conditional, um, conditioned, it, it would be, well, if you can deliver a win, I might give you some love, you mm-hmm. know? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you win this race, well, I'm really proud of you and I'm going to give you a hug and I'm really impressed. So these patterns can be set up quite early on and it can elicit a drive within someone that if I don't feel good about myself, I need to elicit something in my environment that gives me external feedback that I'm good enough. Right. And sport is wonderful for that because you get given a medal, you get given a placement, you know, if you're first, second, third. And rowing, you're constantly looking at your numbers to tell you whether or not you're good enough. Now, whether that's weight on the scales or whether or not it's your ergo score. So you've constantly got this external feedback to tell you how good you are. I remember at the Olympics this year, obviously... Simone Biles pulled out of a couple of her events and there was various reactions to that typically, but there's a lot of people were supportive and she came out with a quote, which was something like, wow, getting that support made me realize for the first time, I am more than my scores. I am more than my results. And I've spoken to other people as well. Siobhan Marie O'Connor, the swimmer, she, she said, when she was competing, she won uh, silver uh, at 26, the 2016 Olympics. She said, you know, when her times were really good, she was good. When her times were really bad, she was bad. So how common is this um, searching for external approval as a driver for performance in elite sport? Yeah. Well, look, I see it all the time. (laughs) But um, I have to kind of say I'm aware that I work with a slightly skewed population potentially because if an athlete is healthy, happy, um, they wouldn't come and see me. So I don't know, maybe I've got a bit of a biased opinion, but I think it's incredibly common. I mean, you you speak to a lot of athletes all the time as well. I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are on this. Have you you met a healthy, happy athlete? Uh, Yeah. It's funny you say that, actually. So the the comment that springs to mind was when I interviewed Tony Adams, uh, who set up Sporting Chance and was an addict for a long time. And we were speaking about addiction. And he he said, well, being being a footballer, it's not a health... I'm sorry, I'm trying to... I've got the sound of his voice, his voice in my head. But being a footballer or being an elite athlete, it's not a healthy or a balanced way of yeah. living. A balanced yeah. way of living, I think, is the way of it. And then also, there's a couple of people in your book. So Johnny Wilkinson, the classic example. You know, one of the greatest English sportsmen, certainly one of the most iconic English sportsmen of all time, fully acknowledges now that he was right on the edge and had real mental health difficulties. And that, like you said. I think you said earlier, what can also benefit can also hinder. 
And, yeah. and in his case, that was quite obviously the case. Like what made him such a brilliant rugby player almost as well, almost drove him to yeah. utter despair. So I would tend to agree with you quite a lot, actually. Okay. I mean, look, we're talking about skew to the left, skew to the right now, aren't we? I mean, do, do you want me to start well, to go into well, well, before Before you do skew to the left, skew to the right, just let's quickly, just, maybe just quickly say what the, the narrative is. I think the narrative generally is right now in mainstream, the mainstream narrative around sport is that these are special people with special talents. Let's put them on a pedestal. Let's uh, idolize them. Let's aspire to be like them. Let's learn from them. And let's, we should all be more like them. And what actually you're suggesting is that no, whilst there are some things that we of course can learn from elite sports in many cases, Actually, the reason people are in that position is because, for example, they didn't get the loving gaze and internalize things when they, they were young. So actually, it's often driven by a certain amount of um, disquiet. Yeah. And that, that's a lovely way of putting it, actually. I like that terminology. There's, there's an internal kind of disquiet um, about this. I mean, look, if we all grew up and we were given unconditional love and regardless of what we did, you know, we were made to feel valuable. I, I don't know whether we'd be chasing around a sports field trying to prove something. Um, it, I don't know. Maybe people will shoot this down in flames, Simon, because <laughs> all of the people that just love sports um, and feel incredibly healthy and happy humans in all areas of their life might start to contact us. It would be nice to hear from them because I don't, I don't hear from them very often. But... Yes, I, I'm aware we all need a hero, right? We all need to yeah. think that we can achieve incredible things. Um, and it's nice for a lot of people to think that we can master adversity and we can do whatever we want to do or, and we can become whoever we want to be because that gives us all hope right? Because we've all had a history and we've all had trauma or we've all had something challenging at some point in our lives. So it makes sense that people would want to relate to our sports stars in this way. Look, there you go. Slip, slip in the terminology. <laughs> yeah. I've called them stars. Okay. Yeah. Well, there um, you go. Right. Yeah. But ultimately what I'm seeing is that, yes, if people are motivated to be elite and go to the lengths that's required of them to be elite, then there is something underneath that that's motivating that level of engagement. You said that some people might balk at this idea. So uh, I think it's worth then just quickly quoting Alain de Botta. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> I, like, I like a lot of Alain's work and a couple of things that he said. The first being that he says, to take this into another realm, if you ever see someone driving along with a bright red top of the range Porsche, don't envy them. Feel pity for them that they didn't get the love they needed in childhood. So that's one. And then also he talks about the snake in the grass of wanting more than normal. So we live in a time where, generally speaking, the majority of us, certainly in this country, can have three meals a day. We have a roof over our heads. We have what we need largely. So, and we can lead a normal life where we get up and and everything's just about okay, as long as we don't watch too much news, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, 
But we have now the snake in the grass that normal is not okay, and we need to be exceptional. So I just wanted to introduce these ideas because this sport, again, is the metaphor for life, isn't it? That's what we're talking about here. This could be applied to business. This could be applied to the arts. This could be applied to, oh, I remember, I think it was Matt Damon saying about, you know, if you think an Oscar is going to fill up your internal void, then you've got a, a world of pain awaiting you. So this isn't this isn't exclusive to sport, but the pedestal of sport is not quite as uh, aligned in our view as the mainstream narrative would have us believe. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. This is about satisfaction, right? And, you know, in psychoanalysis, we talk about good enough. You know, yes. can we sit in a place, can we exist in a place where we're okay with good enough? Yes, Good enough is such a good quote that I think good enough. Yes, I think good enough is a really good quote just to sort of have rattling around your head, generally speaking. Right now, this definitely is now time for you to explain. Right. What does skewed to the right and skewed to the left mean? OK, so skewed to the right, skewed to the left is referring to the normal distribution. So as psychologists, we love to measure stuff. This is how we measure cognitive ability, personality traits, and we plot it. And it's it's called a bell curve. Yeah. And, you know, in the middle, you've got a huge number of people that are considered average. Mm-hmm. And in the tail ends to the right, so skewed to the right, you've got above average. And then you've got clinically significant right at the end of that skew to the right. Okay. Yeah. Skew to the left, you've got people that are below average. And then again, in the very tail end of left, you've got clinically significant. Okay. So this is often how psychologists diagnose things. Okay. Right. So, yeah. okay. If we're, if we're really high at one end, we're looking at, you know, superior intelligence or something like that. Okay. And then we'd have to change the environment for that child to learn and things like that. With regards to sport, I've noticed that personality traits tend to cluster in our elite sports people. And what I've noticed is that there are a number of traits that our elite athletes are skewed to the right on. So they have higher than the typical population. So I would argue that the elite athlete population have higher values of obsessionality, higher values of masochism, so pushing themselves through the pain barrier and even enjoying pain to some extent. Yeah. Higher values of focus to, to the exclusion of everything else and higher values of aggression. I didn't manage to get a chapter in huh. about aggression, but I really wanted to. Okay. Uh, I, I didn't have someone to talk to about that, but higher values of aggression as okay. well. All right. Okay, so we've got masochism, okay, obsessionality and focus, which I've read about, and now you've introduced a, a aggression <laughs> into that. So why don't we sort of tick them off then one by one? So yeah, can you give some maybe a bit of examples, starting with masochism of, of yeah, how that would manifest and show up? Yeah, so we've spoken a little bit about this already, haven't we, about, you know, in order to progress in sport, the moment that you hit a painful moment, whether you're lifting weights or whether you're running, if you just give up at the first sight of pain, you're not really going to reach elite. 
you know, you're, you're just going to stop running or you're just going to say, oh, well, I didn't get that third set of 10 reps, but hey, ho, doesn't matter, hurts a little. And then you give up. So you're not going to hit elite status. So you do have to tolerate certain amounts of pain during training. Now, I'm not talking about injury pain. I don't wish to advocate no, that at no. all. The voice um, in her head saying, please stop, please stop, please stop. It hurts. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, exactly. It's how how you relate to that voice. Now, what I've seen in elite athletes is that they can switch that off or they notice the pain and actually they start to enjoy the pain and they get something from that. So if it's higher than average, we're looking at elite sports people that push through the pain barrier. And this is often something that's celebrated in common narrative, right? Everybody says about becoming... Uh, comfortable with the uncomfortable, pushing through the pain barrier. To some extent, yes, we need that. But my concern is when we live in that place too much and then the athlete starts to push through injury pain. So they don't stop training when they're injured or they have to hit a certain level of intensity and pain in their training to feel satisfied that they've done enough that day. And then on the clinically significant scale, this would then extend into other areas outside of their sporting life where we, we're then looking at self-harm or things like bulimia, where people are engaging in behaviours where they're not just engaging in pain on the field, but they're also uh, relating to pain in other symptoms in their everyday life. And you talk about two people, relate this. so relating this to the masochism side, you talk about two people in the book, one called Michelle, one called Kieran. So Kieran mm. uh, was a rower. Remind me what sport Michelle's was? Uh, cyclocross. Cyclocross, yeah. okay. And so, and Kieran made himself sick, right, to keep his weight down, correct? Okay, so yes, he did. Kieran used the term functional vomiting, okay? Okay. So... And, and again, this pertains to the discussion of because I'm an athlete, I'm not bulimic. I'm just engaging in functional vomiting to get the job done. So that's acceptable. That's rationalization, isn't it? To use sort of one of your clinical terms. Yeah. What's helpful about having this discussion, though, is that, you know, from my own experience as a lightweight rower, Kieran's not an island with this, you know, the, this is familiar. You know, I, I've seen this a lot and I've worked with a lot of rowers, um, as with other weight restricted athletes. And these kind of behaviours where if you weren't in a sports environment and you reported these to your GP, you would typically be getting referred to your eating disorder service. But because you are in a sporting environment and it is weight restricted, these are merely behaviours that are engaged in that are acceptable within that sports culture. From what I remember with the Kieran story, he fainted, didn't he, pre-London 2012 because his, and he, he put that down to low blood pressure and he was passing blood in his urine because some of his organs were shutting down because he was just restricting his calories so much to be able to make under this weight. Yeah. And there was the fact that people were missing this when you're so monitored as an elite athlete suggests that perhaps there may have been, and it might've been unconscious, but an unconscious 
looking away because it's like, okay, well, that may be the price you have to pay to be an elite athlete. And so there's a certain amount of not not conspiracy, but um, what's the word? You know, when they work together, a certain amount collusion, collusion, collusion. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and again, I, I'm not interested in blaming no. anyone no. for this happening. What I'm interested in, just as with therapy, is an analysis of why this is happening. So Kieran himself would also hold his hands up, personal responsibility, and say, well, I wasn't communicating explicitly to the sports doctor that I was engaging in these behaviours. So there is a motivation and a need in the individual to continue to make weight and to continue to try and win and to win medals just as there is something else going on systemically within the coaching team, within the medical team that either wish to support that individual or unconsciously wish to continue to engage in something that's acceptable in that culture. Yeah. And this is, this is what we need to look at. You know, why, why is this happening? And part of that, surely, if that is true, and even if it is unconscious, it has to be surely in at least in part down to priorities and the fact that performance is prioritized over the person yes yeah you're absolutely right it's you know what are what are we striving for here are we striving for good healthy humans first that deliver good performance or or are we striving for something different and you know this relates to whether or not people will see a clinical psychologist because there is an awareness that actually if I do become healthy, happy, relate to myself in a positive way, know that I have intrinsic value, am I then going to go and chase this performance? And then does that mean that I'm going to lose my job, lose my standing in the team and lose uh, what's paying my bills? Yeah. Blimey, what a tough question, right? And you often have to make these difficult decisions. It's like, okay, what is in my highest good? And that might mean walking away from a sport, for example. So, and then in terms of Michelle, um, again, from memory, so she was someone who really thrived off putting herself in the pain barrier and would really be scared about the prospect of of not being able to not just exercise, but really kind of punish herself. And that punishing herself you spoke about was a an outward expression of an, an inward feeling that was not able to be expressed in a healthy way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we think about masochism, um, analytically, we think about it as um, the individual turning their aggression inwards because we're attacking ourselves, right, when we're being masochistic, um, as opposed to sadistic, where we would attack and locate our aggression outside of ourselves towards other people. So masochism is a way of turning our aggression inwards to ourselves. And often that can happen when it feels safer to do that than to attack our objects around us. So, you know, the book goes into Michelle's developmental history, And it's fair to say that her upbringing was characterized with a lot of aggression towards herself from others Mm -hmm. in her upbringing. And then you see that's what became internalized 
form shell. And mm. if other people stop doing that for her, she'll relate to herself in that way yeah. as well. Yeah. And then potentially she'll repeat that pattern by inviting other people into her life that fit that template for her as well. And that's not just inviting other people, that's also inviting activities into her life that allow her to continue to relate to herself in that way. So I'm saying that because Michelle invited sport into her life because it was a vehicle to allow her to continue to relate to herself in this way. This masochistic behaviour was representative of really how she felt about herself right yes. so it was like she was punishing herself because she almost felt like she deserved to be punished yeah yeah that's that's all she ever knew yeah millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quick question for you, Amy, then. In terms of language and stuff like that, and in terms of performance, if someone's talking about non-negotiable behaviors that they demand of themselves and other people, what does that bring to mind for you does that ring any alarm bells or is that okay in your view um it feels very um rigid very fixed almost a little punitive um that there are non-negotiables we are developing individuals we can develop we can change it feels very rigid um controlling oh yeah yeah of course yeah absolutely interesting okay thank you that's useful to know Okay, let's move on to obsessionality quickly then. So obsessionality, you mention in the book, Johnny Wilkinson, who I think is a fantastic example of this and someone who I think has done the work. You know, I really, really admire Johnny. I've had him on this podcast and 
where he is now compared to where he, the guy who won the World Cup. I mean, it's absolutely poles apart. And and again, I think that shows that going through trauma or having these traits or whatever or difficult times can actually end up being a real blessing if you can grow through them. But it's it's when you get stuck there that they become a problem. But yeah, can you talk about Johnny though? Because I mean, he was famous, wasn't he, for how obsessive he was at taking kicks at goal and as... England rugby fans would just rejoice in that fact because it meant that nine times out of 10, when he stepped up, no matter where the ball was on the pitch, you knew he was going to slot it over. But actually that was bordering on clinical and it bordered on, and he he happily admits this, it bordered on taking him to the, the absolute pit of despair. Yeah. So uh, Johnny wasn't someone that I interviewed for the book, but he was someone that I referenced in the book because he's spoken about this publicly himself. And, and, you know, perhaps you can say a bit more about when you've spoken to him as well in terms of how he experienced this. But I wanted to include him at the start of the book because he is such a good example of this where, and we all saw it, right? He's a household name and we saw the the routine with which he would attack every single kick on the field. It was precise. It was practiced. It was obsessive. But in his own biographies, he talks about how that obsessionality would then follow him off the field. Mm. So as much as it was a personality trait that helped him on the field to be an incredible sports person, It was also a personality trait that hindered him in his life. So I talk about personality traits that both help and hinder simultaneously. And off the pitch, what we knew with Johnny from what he's spoken about is that he would then find himself sat in restaurants, for example, just not being able to leave because of him obsessing about the cutlery on the table. And so, you know, he was functioning at a very high level on the pitch and that obsessionality was serving him well. But as you say, off the pitch, it was a completely different story. Yeah. And, and I don't know whether you've got more to add to that, Simon, from your discussions. Yeah, yeah I mean, he, yeah, he said from memory, yes, it was, it was all about rugby. And so, and then, so he sacrificed balance for that. And now he's all about balance. I mean, classic example, right? He has a kombucha company, Number One Living. Fantastic, actually. And the name Number One Living, you've got to go back and, and understand the name or why he decided to call it Number One Living because I think it really illustrates his journey really, really well. So he's got a kombucha company. And, and the whole point of that is kombucha, like kefir, is full of probiotics. So he talks about it in terms of balance within the body. So making sure that everything is working in alignment with each other. Whereas for him, when he was injured, for example, he gave the example of he, I think he'd had back or neck surgery, even like something really serious. And the day after the surgery, he was back on the bike going, you know, oh, I've got to get back to that level. So therefore his body, which was saying, please let me rest, please Mm -hmm. let me recover, was not working in balance with his mind, which was saying, no, You've got to go above and beyond to get back to this level. And now he's, like I said, he's, he's the opposite of that. And actually, he came out with a beautiful line, which is that in society and in sports, where it's really exemplified, is um, that all this doing will create being. 
And what he means by that is that all this masochistic at times behavior it will lead to happiness and peace at some point in the future. And the beautiful thing for Johnny was that he got to taste the very pinnacle of what could be tasted in his sport. He won the Rugby World Cup at the age of 24. Not only that, he was player of the tournament. He kicked the winning goal, as we all know, in that fairy tale style. But then he realized later, it was like, actually, no, you know, I won the World Cup, but it didn't make me happy. And he said that, yes, you know, in society, we have this view that whether it be a relationship, whether it be a car, whether it be a promotion, whether it be a retirement, and, and he actually added quite an amusing one. Now we've got a new one, which is your legacy. So once you're dead, um, mm-hmm. will make you happy. And actually, no, doing does not equal being, you know, and actually yes. being needs to sort of come first and, and balance is often a big part of that. So yes, uh, I don't know if I've helpfully added or not there, but that's that's all stuff from memory. And his, his journey and everything he's had to say is just, I mean, being brilliant and completely backs up everything you're saying. And so is he therefore suggesting that the process of doing leads to being or ultimately the process of doing and then realising that that doesn't satisfy and fill the void? Yes, that, that, that yes, right. that, that, that doing, all this doing, masochistic, yeah. obsessional, whatever, or whatever it may be, even on a smaller scale, let's say, you know, working your ass off to get that promotion, that we'll do, we'll do all that stuff and then at, that will then make us happy, a.k.a. fill an inner void. Yes. And yeah. that is that being. So being happy, where actually it's like, no, nothing outside of us, and this mm-hmm. is the whole thing, can fill that inner void, right? And this is what we're talking about. So if you haven't, if we feel like we have an inner void because we didn't get that gaze that you mentioned earlier, and we seek it outside in any object, it will mm-hmm. never work because the outside world is always changing. It, nothing stays the same outside we have to find it inside so that's what johnny was getting at yeah absolutely spot on yeah good stuff right okay focus focus okay so uh you want me to talk about graham fowler and oh, focus. oh yeah yeah go on, go on graham was a really interesting one yeah go on he was a, he was an interesting fella Okay, so Graham's spoken a lot about um, his mental health journey himself. I think he's got a couple of... Do you want to just quickly explain who he was, actually? Because he's probably a bit before, you know, he was an 80s star, wasn't he, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, So, um, yeah, so he was a coach at university when I was a student, actually. So uh, he was an 80s star. Uh, He was an England cricketer. Uh, He was Botham's era, I think. Yes, he was, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So um, Graham Foxy Fowler... Um, as he likes to be known as, um, (laughs) shared uh, his story. He was the first person I interviewed, actually, um, and very generously shared his story. I should say, actually, that that none of the people in the book, when I wrote this, uh, were patients of mine. So uh, it was a collaborative process of them sharing their story for the purpose of the book. Um, So Graham shared his story, and ultimately... um, he, I think he, he shared this anecdote, didn't he? That um, somebody came in and wanted to do some research with his students. And he said, well, you're only going to do them with, your, with my students if you do it with me first. And um, it, they, they did this test with him. Um, and apparently he had fighter pilot focus 
Um, and ultimately, this researcher just turned around and said uh, something about how traumatic his relationship with his mother was. And he went, you're, you're not going anywhere near my students. That's that's crazy. Because he had, <laughs> because he had, right? And he was like, oh, my God, you've seen right through me. Yeah, yeah. So Graham talks about his upbringing, but ultimately it was very much about how he became so focused on the cricket ball to the exclusion of all else in his world because of the emotional trauma of his past, that he was just a phenomenal cricket player, but he pushed out everything in order to reach that level of focus. And again, it meant that he was phenomenal on the cricket field, but in his everyday life, he had become highly defended to the emotional contents of his internal world. Mm. And it, it eventually led to collapse once he retired. Yeah. Um, when he and... didn't have something to focus on. He couldn't, he didn't have the cricket ball to focus on. So everything mm-hmm. that he had pushed out into his subconscious, which is what happens, yeah. right? When when we're young and things we don't want to experience, we push them into the subconscious unconsciously and there they stay lurking, but they're in there. And then, you know, they're not going anywhere until they need to be sort of faced and embraced and accepted and all that and understood and worked through and all that stuff. But yeah, when he didn't have the cricket ball, they were still there lurking and eventually popped out and got him. Yeah, yeah. And he's he's spoken openly about his long struggle with depression um, and his his struggle with engaging even with therapy because to engage in therapy, you then have to look at your internal world. And, and that in itself is really challenging. But yeah, we all have defense mechanisms, right? They're, um, yeah. they're there for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> Some of us have more insight than others. But and, and a little bit of healthy defense mechanisms can, can go a long way. But if, if we take them to the nth degree and they're too much, then this stuff is still there. It's, it's going to pop up at some point. Yeah. And, and that's what happened to Graham. Yeah. Can I just quickly ask you in terms of defense mechanism? So like being like really focused on one thing to the exclusion of, of uh, things in our subconscious, blah, blah, blah. What about like, say, someone who's very controlling? And what I mean by that, like things have to be done their way, bordering on obsessionality, you know, very uncompromising, very no, no it, it has to be in my way. Is that quite a typical defense mechanism? Oh, absolutely. So, so you're we're going into uh, Freud's stages of development now. Yeah. Um, and so we would commonly refer to a controlling personality as an anal personality, um, and that's largely considered as um, a defence against anxiety. So there is a concern that if I don't control my environment and the people around me, then um, that's going to be overwhelming. And so it's a control mechanism to manage the internal worry, fear, anxiety that might be lurking somewhere. And it works up to a point, right? But it, but it takes a lot of energy to be like that, right? And then yeah. at some point, boom, it comes crashing down and then all that stuff's just waiting there to be looked at. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that's such an individual thing, though, as well. And it And it's not for... Um, professionals to sit there and think, oh, wow, you yeah. know, you, you really need some help with this. It, it's got to come from the individual because unless that trait within the individual is causing them distress, then they're not going to want to work on it. Yeah, There isn't that um, conflict for yeah. them. 
So often so they, they have to hit rock bottom until they do anything about it. Let's say they do get to a point where the walls collapse and they're, and a, dep- a depression forms. Actually, whilst that is experienced in the moment as, as a really, oh my gosh, this is awful, that actually mm-hmm. may be an opportunity to be like, okay, right, let's see how this relates to, so for example, the controlling, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely an opportunity. It's that moment of realisation of, oh, okay, maybe this isn't working for me anymore. And, and that's the moment of opportunity um, if people are willing to look at the stuff inside their internal world. Well, what do you think makes someone willing or unwilling to look at the stuff inside their internal world? Oh, that's a good question. Um, in order to look at the stuff in your internal world, um, you have to have a certain ability to tolerate distress because you've heard the saying, right, it'll get worse before it gets better. And it does, you know, going through therapy, it gets a lot harder before it gets easier. So there has to be, ah, now there's a saying, isn't there? You have to be well enough to take it, but, um, oh goodness, I'm butchering this, aren't I? I know where you're going with this, yeah. Go on, go on, have a go, go on, go on, I know, I can hear it. I know, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, but ill enough to need it or something. Yes, something yeah. along those Which lines. Which makes total sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah So yeah. there has to be this balance somewhere in terms of, you know, unwell enough to need it, but well enough yeah. to do it. So enough disquiet um, that you go on the search, but not too much that you can't get out of bed to start the search, basically. Yes, yeah, exactly that. I think as well that there's something for me about... Um, fear so how fearful are people of what they're going to find in their unconscious world yeah yeah and is that could that be unconscious as well you know that that, uh, an unconscious fear of what they might find yes but i mean there's layers to the unconscious right you've got your conscious your subconscious the unconscious we're we're talking degrees yeah 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 and i think if someone is really fearful sometimes it might be because there is an element of knowing that there might be something there yeah um that's going to be quite challenging to think about yeah now i also just want to say i'm i'm not suggesting that you know if you ever come into a psychoanalysis that we're all going to find that trauma i think that's another myth isn't it that people think that there's going to be this epiphany that yeah. there's a traumatic moment that happened to them and it's going to answer all of this yeah um it's it's very uncommon that hap- that that happens. Of course, it happens to a few people, um, but actually, it's more of this gradual analysis and understanding of a, a much wider context um, and developmental experience that that tends to allow us to join the dots. Yeah. Um, okay. So, in terms of sport, I actually just want to quickly. I remembered something you said about Michelle which was that um, not so she was hurting herself. Uh, she was masochistic in her behavior and that communicated this belief that she was low worth, let's say. But then you also said that that can be projected out and you will, so she, with that, she drew this sport where she was able to do that towards her. But you often draw relationships. Now that might be the coaching relationship, but also it might be a romantic relationship, right? So could you just yeah. t- t- quickly talk about how 
whether it be well in fact if you can if you can cover both of these things let's say a relationship our romantic relationships how they tend to recreate mm-hmm. our formative relationships and then also mm-hmm. how a coaching relationship can also be sort of surrogate parent as well can you cover both of those quickly <laughs> sure i'll try uh, um, <laughs> So, so we're we're in the area of uh, object relations here. So templates, okay. Yeah. So uh, you're talking about formative relationships, okay. So we've talked about this process of internalization, okay. Uh-huh. So if we relate to our self as um, not valuable, okay, um, not not good enough, we typically you know, it's like magnets, okay? Object yeah. relationships are like magnets. You're drawn, therefore, to people that might be a bit abusive or critical or judgmental or aggressive, okay? Because that will hold your self-template in place, okay? So, and these are formed in our early years from our formative relationships, and we have a self and an other template, Okay. And this is then what we are driven to repeat in our future life, okay? So this other template can be found in other people, so romantic relationships, but it can also be found in other activities or things in our lives. So sport can become the abuser or sport can become the thing that makes you feel judged, as well and then that maintains the self template okay Uh so it that's how we repeat these uh templates throughout our lives and maintain that way of relating to ourselves and feeling that way about ourselves which was set up early on in life yeah but that's interesting isn't it because i think a lot of people end up in relationships and perhaps think oh blimey I keep ending up with the same type of person but actually it makes total sense when you put in this in this sense and yes uh I said to you a quote I quite I before we started recording a quote I quite like uh is one where it's if you see relationships as a way not to make you happy but to make you conscious then they become a wonderful tool for self-mastery and so yes you can either if you are attracting at the level that you're at you can either mm-hmm. then have reinforced or you you can work through that if you're lucky enough to perhaps yeah. say for example meet someone who's 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 open to that with you so it's not it's not that you're doomed to it for forever to be stuck in this way actually that can be a bit of a blessing but it does tend to work that way in terms of relationships like people tend to draw towards you know people who just reinforce things in themselves Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, even though there's some disquiet or distress attached to it, it's familiar. And we're habitual beings, you know, we we like what's familiar, even if it's challenging. And we strive to seek what's familiar. Um, You know, Freud also talks about repetition in order to try and master these things as well. So there's, you know, you talk about romantic relationships. There's there's this popularized statement, isn't there, of the person thinking, well, I, I just wanted to change them. Yeah, yeah. There's this hope that you can master the other template, you know, and you can yeah. change that individual. But ultimately, 
if the individual is confronted with someone who is very different from their other template, it's incredibly overwhelming because they don't know what to do with that. Yeah. You know, historically, they've had someone looking at them, judging them, abusing them. And then suddenly you've got someone complimenting you and telling you you're wonderful. Yeah. And I mean, you might find that it. repellent. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we see it, don't we, where, yes. you know, someone's complimented and they go, no, no, that, I, I know you're absolutely wrong. You know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, hard to tolerate that if that's not your template and it's not what you're used to yeah yeah or if someone is let's say pretty level someone who mm -hmm. is used to having things go up and down might find that person really boring because actually there's not enough emotional volatility right sure. uh, yeah. okay cool i just thought that was worth uh bringing in a bit of relationships then so we've done skewed to the right so in, mm -hmm. On the bell curve, the skewed to the right, the masochistic, the obsessional, the the focus, the aggression, mm -hmm. which is over there heading in the direction of a clinical problem. And then so skewed to the left in terms of low levels of acceptance and low levels of self-worth. And you, you speak about Nigel Owens in this, and he's another chap who's I've been lucky enough to speak on the pod, uh, fantastically warm, kind and entertaining man. But yes, as he well admits, as well, I mean, he nearly took his own life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, an incredible story, really, isn't it, Nigel's? And he's been so generous in communicating his stories to people as well in the hope that we can learn from it and understand from his experience. And I noticed this, that as much as we've got elite athletes with high degrees of obsessionality, masochism, focus. I, I noticed that this coincides with really low levels of self-acceptance and self-worth. Yeah. And Nigel's story was a, a beautiful example, really, of that. Yeah. In that. And it related to his sexuality, didn't it, primarily? Mm. That, that was just a part of himself that he couldn't accept. Mm. Um, and so, and I see this, I, I see this with a lot of athletes that if they are struggling to accept a certain part of themselves, again, sport is related to as something that might offer them different feedback that they are good enough or they are acceptable to someone else. They are acceptable to the timekeeper or they are acceptable to the sporting world because they've won and they're good enough. Yeah. And, it, and it gives them that short-term feedback that they're good enough and they're accepted by the world, potentially on a huge podium, right? Yeah, if you're yeah, really yeah. successful. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, but it doesn't allow for that long-term, sustained, internal sense of worth yeah. and acceptance. Well, it's a fix, isn't it? It's it's like getting a fix, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. And you speak about this in terms of, so let's say, elite sport or let's say the masochistic element that we've spoken about. It's somewhat akin or somewhat analogous to, for example, drug abuse, but mm. it's a socially acceptable one. But it's still it's still a form of you know self abuse. It's still a form of poison. Um, yeah. but, but obviously, but, but we can celebrate it rather than, you know, say it's awful. Yeah. It's, it's a socially acceptable environment to, to engage in these behaviors. Right. I mean, if you, if you look at rugby, I mean, we're inviting men to be aggressive, 
you know so yeah. it's socially acceptable to do that on a rugby field but if you're doing that on a night out that that's a different matter so it you know sport can provide people with an environment that it's socially acceptable to engage in some of these behaviors that that they need to engage in that otherwise would be frowned upon yeah so just to recap what you've noticed is that often with elite athletes they'll have these high levels of uh, masochism, obsession, blah, 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 coupled with low levels of self-acceptance and self-worth. Yeah, exactly that. Wow. Yeah, And that that's the cluster that I often see. And that yeah. combination is not something anyone would want to aspire to because it, it can't be a very nice place to be. Yet, that's what makes them, in many cases, able to be champions, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah, you've nailed it. Yeah. And the narrative is that this is something we should aspire to. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's exhausting to live in that place. Absolutely exhausting. You, you never feel internally good enough. Mm. You're constantly seeking external feedback to tell you that you're worth something. You can't express your aggression outwards, so you have to turn it inwards on yourself. And you have to be obsessive to the extent that you sacrifice everything else in your life to actually elicit this external feedback as well. Yeah, yeah. And something that I read that is very revealing is that you've spoken to a lot of athletes and said, okay, why? Why are you doing this? And often they haven't got a clue why they're doing it. No, no. And it, it, it can often be... Um, a hugely challenging question to ask. You know, I, I often have to be quite careful in terms of when I ask that question mm. because it can destabilize quite a lot, actually. Because I think some athletes may be able to tell you a conscious reason why they're doing it. Yeah. But of course, we're talking about different levels now as well. Yeah. So they might consciously tell me that they like to win and they like the feeling of winning. But then if we start to explore, well, yeah, but what are the other reasons that yeah. you're driven to do this? And that can be hugely challenging. Yeah. I know you're not a huge fan of pop quotes, but there was one that popped in my head and it goes something like this. There's the reason we say we do things and then there's the reason we do things. Everyone can rationalize stuff, right? I remember saying to my dad, so what, what attracted you to my mum? And I remember him saying, well, she's really sporty. Yeah, all right. Okay, Dad. Yeah, and um, well, whilst that is true, yeah. that it was a very, very shallow answer, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Definitely. And we're yeah, all, we can all do that. Sorry, Dad. But we can all yeah. do that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, how, how many of the athletes that you've spoken to have been able to give you a answer of substance when you ask them yes. why? God, that is a good question. Um, right, I'm not going to say who it is, but someone's just popped in my head who competed in, in a number of Olympics. And yeah, I mean, it almost, it was almost, it sounded like from memory, they just had this thought come to their head. Oh, I could do this. Therefore, this is something I could do. And it was no deeper than that. So that could be then from what you're saying, the unconscious is, is, is working away. Mm. And then out of that pops up this really simple thought oh go and do this because like why not 
and actually it's it you know consciously it's no deeper than that but actually what you're saying is it's a hell of a lot deeper than that yeah yeah definitely and I mean to be fair I mean how many people would offer an answer a substance I mean they'd have to have been through probably a bit of therapy to sure yeah or or introspection, however yeah. that's done. It doesn't always have to be in therapy. Yeah. But they'll have had to have been through quite a process to connect with what the internal driver really was. I mean, it's like broadcasting, right? Just to give sports people a bit of slack, right? For, for us people who've been drawn to broadcasting, um, is it a coincidence that we want attention? No, <laughs> I don't think that is a coincidence that, we, that anyone who wants to be on TV and radio it's about getting attention. You know, that's the same thing. And it's like, okay, it might coincide with, let's say, an ability to construct a sentence or, you know, in the case of a comedian, be funny or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And therefore they might go, oh, I love it, right? But actually mm-hmm. it's probably more, no, you just need attention, right? You know, I was a gobby little sod, excuse my language, <laughs> who, who, you know, definitely was like, I remember one teacher always used to write who completely sussed me out. I've mentioned this in a previous podcast and he used to completely be able to chop me off at the knees because he'd come in and write on the blackboard, Simon is here. You know, it was like this acknowledgement that Simon just wants attention. Yes, Simon, we know you're here. It's fine. You don't have to be so, you know, and and then, then I found a career in broadcasting. That is not a coincidence. Wow. Okay. That's <laughs> impressive, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, look, you know, it takes us back, doesn't it? We we all need to be noticed. We do. Yeah. So we've talked about self-acceptance, right? So low self-acceptance. Yes. So mm. let's say someone who who wasn't fortunate enough to get the gaze and so have internalized basically that they have low self-worth, right? Um, whether sporting or otherwise. How would you suggest someone go about accepting themselves? And and you, you know my thoughts on this because I it, it sounds like it's it's a doing, um, mm-hmm. and I would suggest it's 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 kind of not a doing. But I don't know what what's your take on how one can you know go through the process of accepting yourself? Yeah, it's not easy, and I'm I'm not going to pretend it's easy, and I don't want this to be. Um, yeah, uh, pessimistic in any way, but it takes time. Mm, you know, yeah. if if we are adults that are relating to ourselves with low self worth and acceptance, it means that there's been at least twenty, thirty years preceding us where we have related to ourselves in that way. Mm. So, in order to undo that, that's hugely challenging, and. I think the idea behind analysis is that you are given a different object. So remember those templates. Yeah, okay? yeah. The idea behind analysis is that you're given a different object to relate to, whereby you can then internalize something different. Okay, so you are confronted with a therapist who can see value in you, regardless of what you do, how you label yourself and your emotional internal world. Mm. Okay. So over time you would internalize something different and you would be able to relate to yourself in a different way. Mm. 
The idea as well with psychoanalysis is that in order to reach a point of acceptance, we try and increase insight into our developmental histories. And with that insight, I mean, you said earlier, right, that with your own personal journey, you realised it wasn't anything personal mm. in your family home. Yeah. Okay. So there's an awareness that this isn't necessarily about you. No. And that's incredibly helpful to, to recognise that. So I think it's about increasing insight and it's about surrounding yourself with other objects that can challenge that belief in you. But of course, there, there's degrees to that as well in that, you know, we can't, we can't swing to the, to the absolute opposite of what we're familiar with because that would be overwhelming. Yeah. So it's about, you know, finding a therapist or a partner even that challenges that just enough so that it can help you move on to the next the next level in terms of acceptance or self-worth and seeing value in yourself for who you are um not not what you do yes which is key right and we live in a society that it's all about what you do again alan de botan says you know it's the it's the classic thing isn't it we're we're snobs about what you do you know mm -hmm. it's the it's the classic dinner party question so just in terms of then acceptance, a few years back when I was insecure or more insecure, should we say, and, and do you know what, someone, sorry, just as a quick add on here, I, I went out for a drink recently um, with someone who came out with a really nice line and it was like getting secure with your insecurities. And I thought that was a really <laughs> nice line. I was like, that's such a, because yeah, that's, that's a really good one. But uh, the, the interesting thing for me was when I set off on the path of trying to, you know, I was, there was enough disquiet to make me want to go on the search to refer back to the thing and not too much that I was not able, didn't have the energy to do it. So I was quite fortunate to be in that, in that area, should we say. But I, I think I probably, if you'd have asked me then, I probably would have been of the opinion that there was something broken in me that needed fixing. And then actually what I've come to understand is that, no, it's about understanding, non-personalizing, and then realizing actually underneath the beliefs, the story, the thoughts, the feelings, actually, no, none of us are broken apart from this belief that we have that we are broken. Does that ring true? Uh, yes, absolutely. We, we all have those parts within us. And I think it's, it's also, we've got to orient people to reality as well, that therapy is not going to magically fix these parts within us or make them disappear because it doesn't, you know, and, and that might disappoint a lot of people, mm. but it, but it is more about recognizing that, oh, I do have an obsessive part or, oh God, Blumenet, there I am being masochistic again. But with that insight, th those parts will continue to live in us and they may again kind of dampen down, you know, they may be muted somewhat, but if there is insight and understanding and recognition that they can be triggered in us, then we've got a bit more compassion yes. towards that they live in us and and with that compassion compassion comes acceptance and when you accept them paradoxically yeah. 
they have less yeah. power over you anyway. So it's about getting, again, like you said, getting uh, secure with your insecurities. And that, yeah. I, yeah. if someone had told me it was about accepting the fact that I had these things that I didn't like, I would yeah. have been like, no, no, that's not the answer I wanted. And I think I probably was like that for a long time. But then when you can get to that point of acceptance, the magic happens that actually then they stop being such a problem. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I've, I've used this phrase, good enough, okay? Yeah. That, that extends to realising that everyone around us is good enough. They have good parts and bad parts. But that also relates to ourselves, that we have good parts, but we also have bad parts within ourselves that we'd rather not be there. But that's just holistically who we are as humans. Mm. We have good parts and bad parts. And, you know, we've spoken about moving things forwards in sport. If you had a physical injury on your body or a physical vulnerability, you would train with an awareness that that physical vulnerability would stare and you would either make compensatory measures in your training or you would do restorative measures in your training to manage that. Now, why are we not doing the same in sport with our mental vulnerabilities? Because we all have them. Yeah, yeah, great question. And you have a line in the book... And, and I think you tee it up by saying this may be somewhat provocative, but I'm going to cut that bit off because I think it's a really good point. And it, it, it goes something like this. Um, what if we were to accept that this is a vulnerable population who bring fragility before they even step in the door of a coach's office? Now, what you're saying there flies in the face of let's hold these people on the pedestal. What you're actually saying is, we don't need to be putting these people and and looking at them as heroes actually in many ways it's about having empathy for them that they have these things and perhaps they need support more than more than anything yeah and we're not sorry just just to waffle on what time a bit more you're talking broadly here we're talking Mm -hmm. about a complete almost a complete redefinition of elite sport yeah yeah, this is about a complete redefinition of how we relate to our athletes. And if we're going to relate to them differently, how should sporting culture change to support that new understanding of who our athletes are? And the am I right in then saying key key part of that has to be person over performance? Definitely. Human first. Absolutely. How would that change then for example in a sporting context like if you had a couple of recommendations or anything like that well okay so we go into the final chapter here don't we where I talk about how can we start to elicit a cultural shift um we know about the importance of balance okay and we know about vulnerability that exists in this population it's about preempting that vulnerability and scaffolding our athletes in a way that means that we preempt the vulnerable times in their sporting careers. So retirement, injury, um, how they relate to themselves as individuals. Can we support them with those vulnerable parts of their personality, give them insight and allow them to have strategies to manage it on the field and off the field? And from a, let's say, a a viewer, sport viewer, sport supporter point of view is to understand, like you say, that these aren't 
superhuman in many cases, although they are perhaps physically and et cetera, et cetera. But actually, no, they're vulnerable. They're, they mm-hmm. didn't get that gaze. They, there is a certain amount of disquiet which enables them to perform like this. So rather than being like, let's aspire to this, like what, why, why would we aspire to, and I'm not, I'm not being critical of anyone who is in the vulnerable population. You know, I've been certainly in that place myself, but culturally not having this view that this is something that is we people generally should be aspiring to because it's not. Yeah. 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 It's not. And, and I think we have a responsibility to be compassionate towards our elite sports people Mm -hmm. um, and understand that they are humans um, it, it's, it feels bizarre to even say that, you know, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So of course they're human beings with lives and developmental histories and traumas and internal worlds and to just be sensitive and kind really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now to re- return it to sort of the original idea of our conversation, which is that right now the mental health conversation is it's okay not to be okay and wanting to move that forward to know to get people to start saying it's okay to do the work so for someone who's saying okay who's perhaps listened to this and thought okay I want to start doing the work what would your suggestions for how they could start that journey Mm. yeah I would encourage people to do their research there there's a wide range of psychologists out there there's a wide range of therapists out there Mm. doing the work is all about fit and that's not just in terms of therapeutic model for what you're presenting with but it's also in terms of personality in the room with the person that you've got to sit down with and work with as well Mm. so do not be afraid to ask a professional whether or not they are the right fit for you in terms of what they are offering therapeutically, okay? So if you're about performance, think about a sports psychologist. If you're struggling with your mental health, think about a clinical psychologist. And then do a bit of research into the different models of therapy. Look at cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a therapy that works much more on the conscious level and looks at everyday strategies. That's a good fit for people that like practical ways of working and thinking. Okay, but if you're thinking that you need something a bit more substantial or that explores developmental experience and internal conflict, look for a psychoanalyst or a psychodynamic therapist or a clinical psychologist that's trained in that way of working. And doing the work, as we called it, it's not an admission of failure. Actually, it's it takes bravery. It's something that should be lauded, not be embarrassed about. Yeah. Do you know, I, I aspire to a sports environment where the clinical psychologist sits within the team environment that they are part of that training ground and that when a manager or a coach sees their player going to see the clinical psychologist that actually 
that notches them up a peg or two in terms of team selection because they're actually investing in themselves as a human and as a player as well. Yeah. So I aspire to actually flipping that narrative and this being something that's valued and celebrated if it's seen by the internal teams that are involved in team selection. Yeah. And then just as a sort of one of the wrapping up thoughts is just an understanding that if you're looking outside in any direction towards any object, person, Mm. activity, substance, relationship, whatever, if you're looking outside to feel okay inside, it's not a strategy that will ever sustain you in the long term. It's transient. Yeah, Yeah. it is. Yeah. And you'll constantly be seeking. And for some people that might be enough and that's okay. But for others, there will come a point where something more internal needs to change. Yeah. And there's a quick line in your book that springs out and I'm going to name him just because you do in the book. So James Cracknell, who obviously was such a successful rower, then has retired and done all well he was what he was in the oxford cambridge boat race is very you know at a pretty old age relatively speaking um but he's done all sorts of just unbelievable endurance athletes that have uh, endurance events that have been really lauded by should we say the mainstream but then what there was one article that you quote i think it was in the guardian where they said this is not sport but masochism in search of meaning and that's that's what this is, isn't it? It's like turning away yeah. from that and in the direction of actually what you're trying to avoid. And that's what the work is. Yeah, yeah. It, it, was, a, it was a wonderful headline, wasn't it? Yeah. I think you know, they yeah, hit the nail on the head, sadly. Amy, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I think yeah. your book is really really good and i think much needed because it really does challenge the narrative that so many people are fed and lap up with this eat with a spoon that sports elite sports people it's like yes crikey if i could do anything i'd be like them actually do you know what you probably wouldn't so yeah just well well done and i mean how does it feel actually being the person to stick their head above the parapet and go Actually, guys, it's a bit different to what everyone else is saying. Petrifying. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, well, who knows? I, I, don't, I know it's not going to be favourable to a lot of people for a number of reasons. And, and I know that for the people that this will be challenging for, it's probably an indicator of where they are with this stuff as well. And, right. and we have to be careful what we push. Yeah. Um, so if there are people that are ready to read this, then I would invite that and it would be lovely to hear from them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so what you just said there, if it actually triggers something in someone where they're really repelled by what you're saying, actually, that might be a sign. Yeah, potentially. Potentially. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Amy, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. It's, it really has been a pleasure talking to you. We will chat again, no doubt, and really enjoy talking to you. So thank you very much. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much.
Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode with Dr. Amy Aziki. I would be fascinated to hear your thoughts on this one. Do drop me a message via social media at Simon Mundy or email me via my website, simonmundy.com. I think the everyone should aspire to be a champion narrative is one that needs challenging. Our worth is intrinsic and by doing the work, as we say, you can recognize that fact and let go of the need to be the best in the world. Not that there's anything wrong with being the best in the world, of course. If you could share this episode, I would be very grateful and please do rate and review where you get your podcasts. A reminder about this week's Monday on a Monday newsletter. This week talking about why suffering can be a gift and why it's vital to find out who the decision makers are within a company. That is simonmundy.com to sign up. But that's it for now. Thanks again and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today. And view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save